Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast. This is Abraham Kim, your host of this podcast. As a part of the Council of Korean Americans' work to examine the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusivity in our community, we interviewed Tammy Kim, the Vice Mayor of the City of Irvine, as well as Founder and Managing Director of the Korean American Center in Orange County, California. For much of her professional career, Tammy has been seeking out and working with great talent as a human resources manager and then a top performing executive finding amazing leaders for some of the biggest tech firms. One of the first Korean Americans in this field during the 1990s, Tammy got a unique perspective on corporate advancement and why Asian Americans were not excelling in getting executive roles. Tammy's life also took some dramatic shifts. Following her corporate career, her love for Korean culture and the community launched a second career in nonprofit promoting Korean language and heritage as well as supporting the most vulnerable in the community. What started with a love for Korean history and drama, it turned into a passion for education and community service. It is not surprising that this deep desire for public service led to a career in politics, where she currently serves as vice mayor of the city of Irvine. Tammy reminds us it is our own duty to lay the groundwork to combat racial inequities and discrimination, especially for those of us who are in positions of power. Before talking about her current life, we start our interview from the very beginning with her family immigration experience, which began in Flint, Michigan. It was a bumpy childhood and young life, but with family love, faith, and resilience, it laid the groundwork for an impactful public servant leader. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the fun and inspirational interview with Vice Mayor Tammy Kim. Welcome, Vice Mayor Tammy Kim. We are so happy to have you here as a part of our podcast today. We really appreciate your time. Tammy, let's start from the very beginning. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, your immigration experience? Uh, were you born here in the United States or did you immigrate at a young age? Yeah, so my family came here when I was a year old. We came actually in 1971. <laughs> where we settled in Michigan. We moved to an area of Flint, Michigan, that was actually considered even like the lowest of the low income areas of Flint, Michigan. You know, up until fourth grade, I was the only non-Black student, you know, in my class. And when I was about four or five years old, actually my biological father left. So my mom with very little education, very little English, was left, you know, taking care of, at the time, two children, you know, in Flint, Michigan, in an area and in a place that she was, like, not familiar with. Uh, there were very, very, very few Koreans at the time, but there were, you know, a very small handful of Koreans. So she actually worked at a, uh, as a seamstress for one of the Korean shop owners in Flint. And despite having very little of anything, she 
sponsored my uncle and his family, as well as her younger sister, my aunt, who at that time was in high school, as well as my grandmother to come to the United States. So this was, you know, back in the 70s where it was very easy. uh, It was much easier to sponsor family. It was clearly very tough growing up, but you know, she managed to be, you know, one of the founders of the very first Korean church in Flint, Michigan at that time. So they all moved to to Flint, Michigan. (laughs) So whatever Korean population existed, you know, at that time was, uh, you know, was as a, a result of our family. And when I was in high school, my mom uh, met my dad, who was in Baltimore. It was actually a very, very Korean style arrangement where they exchanged pictures. And one day, you know, my mom said, I might meet someone and we might get married. (laughs) And that's what happened. And so when I was in high school, my mom went away for the weekend and, you know, my grandmother was taking care of us. And he was also, you know, divorcee as well in Baltimore. He also came here and was sponsored by his sister who was already here, you know, and life was a struggle for him as well, not being able to speak much English and having to be a day laborer and then eventually was able to scrape up enough money for, you know, a very small liquor store. And he had two children. So that those are also my brother and sister. He's the only father that I know. And he is who I consider my only, only father. I love him dearly. So they, they met, quickly married, you know, are still married today. But I was still in high school at the time. So I needed to finish high school before we moved to Baltimore. And so that's what happened. But I still went to, you know, I was already accepted to Michigan State. So I went back to Michigan State and studied public policy. So that was sort of my very early, early, early experience. So let's talk a little bit about your college years. You you studied public policy. So it, it sounded like you had the at least the political bug had bitten you early uh, in terms of your desire for public service. Uh, was that was that the case? It was. So I was very active in high school when it came to you know student government, and I was very involved with groups like Amnesty International, which back then. And so this is like we're talking about the the eighties, the nineteen eighties here, where there's like no email or no social media, where you're literally doing letter writing campaigns. And I remember specifically, this is during the height of the pro-democracy movement in South Korea, you know, in the late 80s. And my mom was furious when she saw a letter going to South Korea addressed to the Blue House. She went nuts and absolutely forbade me from being involved in anything political because keep in mind When she left Korea, it was still a military dictatorship. You could go to jail for anything or nothing at all. And so she was convinced in her mind that the police would come after me, the government would come after me, and that I would go to jail. So, you know, keeping in mind that is that is the context in which she came from and was so scared that and so upset that she wanted 
no involvement whatsoever of me being involved. So I'm not saying she squashed my dreams. It's not that, but it was, you know, it really came out of, and it's not to place blame, but it really kind of came out of the fear at that time. That is all Koreans knew. And so any Korean that was here in the United States at that time also came from that type of environment that sort of perpetuates. And that's the legacy that we have today among many, especially older generation Korean Americans who, you know, also raise their children to be very apolitical as well because of that fear of being in prison and being labeled as a communist and possibly dying. Obviously, politics was something that they wanted you to avoid. Were they trying to guide you into a certain career path like many Asian parents try to do with their parents? (laughs) Yeah, so I was never good at math and science. I was not that good. My brother was, but I was not that good in math and science. So, you know, being a doctor or an engineer was was certainly out of the question. There there was uh, support for being an attorney. And so I, I was looking at that. But honestly, my first law book that I received when I was studying international law was so thick. I I just couldn't even uh, comprehend that. (laughs) And and I, it was, it was not really, you know, what I was interested in. I was really more interested in the advocacy piece as well. So, you know, again, going back to high school, I also attended many pro-choice demonstrations as well. And then when I was in college, was really active. I know I'm really aging myself, but you know, the first Gulf War, I was really active in student protest against, you know, the invasion of Kuwait by US forces. So that was, you know, the really top of my radar at that time. And so realizing that actually what I enjoyed was the grassroots advocacy piece in working towards justice issues. And then, you know, moving a little bit down later was the LA riots. And that is something that really deeply impacted me. So even though I was in Baltimore, I was working at my parents' liquor store. And so the conditions that led up to Saigu were the exact same conditions that me and my family were in at that exact same time. And the fear that had existed within many Korean families in the East Coast was, you know, whatever's happening in the West Coast would eventually, you know, find its way East. Really seeing the lack of voice and the lack of representation on top of already being in college and and being made more cognizant of who I am as an Asian American and as a Korean American, I think many college students sort of experienced that first blossoming at that time, but that also happened right at the same time as the unrest in LA. So all of that really combined, really sort of helped shape my identity as a Korean American, you know, wanting to give sort of voice to that. But again, I was from a family that didn't have much money. So a lot of my time was spent, you know, if I wasn't working at our store, I needed to have a job because I had to help put myself through college as well. So, you know, my parents taking care of four children, 
I needed and me being the oldest of all the siblings, you know, I had the responsibility to make sure that, you know, I was always working. Being a daughter of immigrants, low-income immigrants on top of that, hardworking, but low-income immigrants who are just trying to survive themselves, I having to work, I was not in a position to take on internship opportunities, to go to DC like a lot of my friends were doing because I had to spend my summers working, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And if I wasn't, when I wasn't working for my own paycheck, whatever capacity that was left was working at my parents' store. So it was, it was one or the other. So when we talk about these opportunities for mentorship and for internships, in some ways, there's, there's a line of, of privilege to that. which has kind of carried with me that thought, you know, for my whole life. So it it sounds like you were kind of in this, this, there's this tug of war, obviously your family situation, the family obligations, the difficulties your families were facing, but you also had this passion to really serve the community, very community you were living in as well, right? But it requires some level of investment by the community into you to continue that dream. But in college, you were able to study it. But after you graduated, you chose a different type of career path. It's not that I chose a different career path. It just, it, everything happened by accident. Also keep in mind, especially my mom, especially my harmony. I come from a very religious family. So despite not having much, despite having to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week, my family always made room for church. So the the fervor and the commitment that my family had towards the church was very deep and very strong. So that's why I look at much of my life, like I received so many blessings. blessings, And I think really sort of as an extension of my mom and harmony, you know, I take nothing for granted, but, you know, for someone like myself who only just worked part-time jobs, didn't have the opportunities for like really meaningful things on my resume. And at that time there was like a recession and a job slump. So it was really a bad time in that like early nineties recession period. So I just worked with my parents. It just so happened that my parents uh, needed to get another store. So they transferred their liquor license over to me. So I was responsible for one of their businesses and created a business, which was actually, most people don't know this, was actually a nightclub. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it started, you were a nightclub owner. Yeah, I was a nightclub owner for a little while there for a hot second in Baltimore. And, you know, so a little a mini nightclub owner, um, because that's all I had. That is, I had nothing except a liquor license, a bar liquor license in the adjacent area to, uh, it was not a great area, a lot of police. And that is all I had. And so, you know, as a, I don't know, 21, 22 year old at the time, I needed to do something and make something. And so did that uh, for a hot second, but I learned a lot of valuable skills doing that from then on went into kind of real estate. So I was helping renting out apartments. Okay. So this is where it gets really crazy. I actually became top producer and I was renting a lot of apartments. It was an apartment referral business is what it was in Baltimore. And 
I, I had a boyfriend at the time. I'm going to admit all of this. So everything's out in the open right now. So I had a boyfriend at the time and he was going to medical school. He was either going to go somewhere in New York or somewhere in LA. So I had already told my parents that I wanted to move to either New York or Los Angeles. That I was just tired of this small town stuff. I needed to go to the big city. And it so happened that he received his residency in Los Angeles, UCLA. So I told my parents, mom, dad, I'm going to move to LA. And it just so happened that there were opportunities for where I was currently working, that they were going to open up corporate offices in Los Angeles. So here was my transfer opportunity. Here I am top producer of apartment referral, going to move to Los Angeles. But the funny thing is, is that in California, to do the exact same work, you needed a real estate license. And so the queue was long for real estate license to, to actually be tested for the real estate license here in California at that time, because just about anything, everything required a real estate license of any type of transactions, whether you're giving mortgages or renting apartments. And so I came to California with basically nothing except a friend who let me be his roommate. And I had to find a job real quick as I waited to take the real estate license. And because I was top producer in that, I did have a friend in LA saying, you would make a great recruiter. <laughs> you would make a great head honor. <laughs> and that is how it happened. What's really funny is how I got my first recruiting job is because I was a business owner. And that is why they gave me the opportunity. So that's how everything sort of comes in full circle mm -hmm. is be, I didn't quite say I, I, I said it was a deli. Um, I didn't say it was a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of. <laughs> um, so, you know, I said it was a food establishment. I, I didn't want to quite say I was a, a club owner, but that's that's what happened. And, and so I uh, became a, a corporate recruiter went through a couple of different firms and ended up at a pretty well-established executive search firm here in Los Angeles. And one of my clients happened to be PricewaterhouseCoopers at the time of the merger between Pricewaterhouse and Coopers and Librand. And I was actually one of their clients, or they were one of my clients. I had done a lot of deals uh, with them, placing a lot of people, especially at that time. I was one of very, very few recruiters at that time that actually dealt in technology. So I found a niche for myself within the firm. And that's how I became actually one of the top producers within the firm, because the firm itself had specialized in accounting and finance. And I had an interest, a strong interest in technology, even at that time. And I was doing all the technical placements for the firm, uh, the, the recruiting firm that I worked at. This was especially around Y2K around that time. So I was doing a lot of like COBOL programmers and, and anyone, anything related to Y2K, as well as uh, technology security. Anyway, PwC was one of my clients. They pretty much offered me a position on the spot. So pretty much after that, the entire trajectory of my corporate career just changed immediately after that. 
you know, going into a big six firm at that time was something that I could only dreamed of maybe 10 years down the road. The fact that it happened so early in my career and the other sort of fluky part about it is because I was already doing deals um, with them, they had a very good understanding of where I was income wise. So I was already, you know, um, you know, my trajectory, this was in the 90s as a 20 some year old already making six figures. That's more than than what people make. So they had to bring me in as an associate director level in order to sort of come equal with the pipeline and the, the pending deals that I had. And so that catapulted and I was probably one of the, you know, in the early 90s. I mean, sorry, not early 90s, but, you know, so that mid late 90s, I mean, basically, you know, my generation is the first generation of second gen Korean Americans. You know, we talk about second generation Korean Americans. They were all coming up around my at the same time. And so I was already sort of well positioned, you know, rolling around K-Town with (laughs) and there was like a very few of us at that time who were actually corporate professionals. We're not even talking about executives or anything like that, but corporate professionals at that time, you know, Koreans in the area, very, very few. Let me ask, since you were in the kind of executive search space and working with other professionals, I imagine I mean, even now today, we don't see a lot of Asian Americans in areas of leadership and a lot of professionals today, but I'm sure even less so in the 90s. Has anything changed from your perspective from what you've seen then and what you see now? Obviously, you're not in the business today, but I'm sure you have a perspective on that. And two, was it structural reasons why Asians, even today, that there weren't a lot of Asians in that space? Or is it was it more than that? Was it just we just lack the soft skills. What what did you see were some of the issues? Yeah. Before I answer this question, I think it's important to note that how my career actually sort of evolved, because, you know, once you sort of go corporate, you become part of like a greater talent acquisition, human resources arm. The scope of my position changed from just doing executive search, hiring people to really every facet of employment. And after PwC, it went to other places like Proxycom, but it all stuck within the technology sector. I became vice president of talent acquisition for CA Technologies, which at the time was a Fortune 500 technology company, uh, being one of the only talent acquisition vice presidents in a Fortune 500 company let alone a technology company. So there were very, very, very few of us. I don't even recall any Korean American. So I was responsible for hiring practices, recruitment practices, which included how we recruit, how we interview, how we move candidates through the process, and then everything related to employment law, which also includes how do we interview and how do we make determinations of who is a fit and who is not a fit. And bottom line is this, racism and discrimination is built within the fabric of many companies. And let me boil this down. This used to be a a really big thing that people would talk about is quote unquote cultural fit. 
So you hear words like cultural fit. You have programs such as employee referral programs. These are all perpetuating the same types of people. So you're a white male who hire other white males, who then promotes other white males. So it's a, it's a system of perpetuating the status quo. And that is the foundation that corporate America is built on. And one of the things that I did was to challenge a lot of what seemed sort of like common sense things like employee referral program. What's wrong with that? challenging things about how we interview and how we make selections. And an important note that I should add is while I worked in technology companies, my specific subject matter expertise was sales. So I was actually a subject matter expert when it came to sales hiring for technology company, specifically software sales. So we call software sales recruitment. And why does this matter? And and why am I bringing this up? Because it's a completely different set of people than what you think of technology and what you think of as engineers. And the irony is Asians were hired in mass for engineering positions. They are not hired for what we call revenue generating customer facing positions. And in those positions, it looks like a fraternity. And that is the culture of technology sales. And it still exists today. It's changed. It's improved. But when I was there and when I started, it was absolutely a boys club. It was a continuation of a fraternity where there were very few women in technology sales and virtually no Asian Americans. And so that's the context. A lot of that hasn't changed all that much. While I am out of it, I do still serve in advisory capacities for several organizations. So I, you know, I kind of wanted just to lay that groundwork. And there hasn't been that much that has changed, especially in technology sales. And why this is important is because technology sales earns the most money, way more than a double that of an engineer. When you can sell software, you can make on-target earnings of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so everyone is content on the engineering side because that's just what we're used to. That's just what we know. But there's this other world of the sales piece of it that is very critical and that has a lot more financial opportunities where we as Asian Americans are systematically shut out of because we are either not a cultural fit, we're not aggressive enough. You name every reason why we're not a good fit. And there has been and always has been this limitation of where Asians can actually go within a technology organization. And again, there have been improvements over the years, but it is still something that Any company that has made improvements, it's because it has been intentional and it has been well thought out. Aside from obviously trying to diversify this workforce within this space, what more can, I guess, people who are interested in diversifying the workforce and leveling the playing field, uh, so to speak, can do to help, let's just say Asian Americans, since we're talking about Asian Americans, to get into these plum type positions within, in, in your case, we're talking about technology firms, but I'm, I imagine there's 
any sales workforce within any companies, like you said, they're the revenue generators. And I imagine a lot of perhaps a lot of the promotions come more rapidly in sales because it's it's a very performance driven, right, in terms of bringing in funds, right? And so I imagine a lot of the executive recruitments come from these types of people in this in this space as well, right? And so aside from, like you said, breaking up the, the structural aspect of this, the cultural aspect of this, what would you recommend uh, a company to do to diversify? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's too, it's too fold. So it's making sure that companies are very intentional in their hiring, making sure that companies like have a really weighted system when they hire, making sure that we can quantify every type of soft skill, if you will, because it's the soft skills that we have to challenge them at every moment of every point and every time, because that's where they get us is those quote unquote soft skills by saying, well, he didn't look at me in the eye or he wasn't aggressive enough or he didn't shake my hand firm enough. All these things where we're taught not to be certain ways and certain things, you know, people like myself, I was very aggressive, very forceful. And, you know, I am what my family calls a person, you know, like my mom thinks I have personality flaws because of it, you know? (laughs) So in Korean, you know, these are personality flaws, you know, but for me, they were survival mechanisms. How can you survive in this this country, you know, you sort of have to mirror, you know, how does a white man, like, how does he carry himself? So it's really about mirroring and mirroring what a white male does. I know that sounds like awful, but, you know, oftentimes it takes for us to be successful. So that's the flip side of the coin is, you know, what do we do? Again, not placing the blame on us because it's not our fault. Um, but you know, these are the, some of the different tips and tricks that we can, we can use. And that I've always coached candidates, especially Asian candidates that I've brought into the door on how to put on their inner white male, uh, and, you know, wear that sort of game face, at least just for, for the time being. But again, going back to, you know, what companies can do, it's leveling the playing field and quantifying these soft skills. It is educating in providing cultural competency training to sales managers and anyone responsible or anyone involved in the hiring chain. These are things that I found to be effective and is the reason why any company that I was ever at, we significantly improved hiring, uh, especially for APIs within sales. And giving them the opportunities, allowing them to start off in inside sales or pre-sales. Pre-sales are also called pre-sales engineers. They're doing the technical scoping. And so at any rate, uh, I could probably go on. This could be like its own. (laughs) (laughs) Its own podcast, right? Its own podcast. (laughs) I want to take a step forward. And you you were a trailblazer in in the executive search, in the kind of human resource space. And then you had a career shift to the nonprofit world and uh, started a co-founded a uh, a Korean American center. Tell us about that and what what precipitated that shift. You know, since college in my corporate career, very cognizant 
of our role as Korean Americans, as Asian Americans. So that never left me in being able to prioritize, being able to provide opportunities for Asian Americans, either in the form of mentorship or helping them getting their foot in the door by making connections within, you know, other software companies. If it wasn't mine, it was others in technology companies. So that never ended. But, you know, one of the things that was made really clear to me, and, and this, again, this all really started, you know, by, by accident, um, is one of the things that I became like very conscious of was, you know, after I had my son, when I had my son and thinking about, you know, his role as a Korean American, as a third generation Korean American in this country, and what I, my friends, what we are able to pass on to our children, which is honestly very little. You know, when we ourselves don't really know that much about where we came from, except that, you know, again, in my case, that you could go to jail or you could, you know, be imprisoned uh, for saying or doing certain things, uh, you know, being labeled by gangy, you know, like that's, that's kind of like what I knew, but, you know, I didn't really know that much. And I have to sort of start off with this sort of funny thing. I always had Korean videos on growing up as soon as like the VCR was invented. <laughs> there were there were Korean videos um, in like paper bags and grocery bags full of like VHS cassettes, like all over the place. So, you know, I was very used to that, but it wasn't anything I necessarily like watched on my own, my own accord. And I just happened to watch uh, by myself uh, a Korean drama and it was a Korean historical drama. And I just like watched it in full by myself. And it was like Queen's Hundok. And I watched that in full. And then I realized, oh my gosh, that's a real person. That's like equivalent of us watching a story about Henry VIII and not realizing that Henry VIII was an actual person. And that really got me started in, like, I didn't know anything. I know, knew nothing. I knew nothing about any of the references that any Korean kindergartner would know and realizing not only just myself, but also, you know, other people. So one of my side things, side projects that I was working on, even in corporate. So even as I was at VMware or CA Technologies, I actually started a blog. It's called KoreanHistoricalDramas.com. <laughs> <laughs> but really, you know, because I was I was studying Korean history by myself on my own and then teaching my child Korean history. That doesn't even begin with Korean American history. So it kind of started. I know it sounds crazy, but it, it really started with that and just realizing I knew nothing and not only just me, but none of my friends, we just like, we knew nothing. I mean, we couldn't tell you what, you know, three kingdoms period, what, like just nothing. You just, you name it, we didn't know. Um, and I, and I think that's like very common, but it really kind of got me thinking, what am I passing down? And then, you know, just accidentally started a language meetup um, through meetup.com back in 2013 
you know, because there were no formalized Korean classes, nothing, there was like nothing in order to learn Korean, learn anything. And so we started, you know, I started a meetup in 2013. It became like super popular and we actually formalized into Korean language lessons. So in order to formalize, I, we needed a place to meet. And we weren't, we were meeting at a library. They said, you guys are too busy. You guys need to formalize. You guys have way too many people. So we formalized into a non, an actual nonprofit organization, which I had offices at that time. So my office space became the start of Korean American Center with funding and investment, investment from me alone. And we had other board members and volunteers but it was really like, that is what started it. And so this was just a side project as I was just doing normal work. And here was the interesting part. When we formalized, became an actual nonprofit organization, an actual 501c3, and we were listed, we started getting calls and more calls for more social service programs. We started getting calls from government officials needing outreach to the community. We started getting calls from community members needing help with immigration work. And that's literally what happened. So it wasn't that we formed to be anything more. The need was so there. And there was not a Korean-based nonprofit organization in Irvine at that time that was sort of dealing with these I'll call it more social services needs of the Korean American community. And that's really the foundation of what had happened. So we partnered on a, a, an immigration project with another social service organization called Korean Community Services in Buena Park, which is North County, uh, which is originally where Koreans started. So when they migrated from LA down to Orange County, they kind of came to the Buena Park, Fullerton, North Orange County area. But then Koreans were starting to really populate here in South County, in, in Ir the Irvine area. And so we worked on an immigration project together and started making referrals. Because we worked really well together, the executive director, uh, Ellen Ahn, who is also like a second generation Korean American, we just worked so well together. We were on the same, same page with, with everything. Um, I actually took a break from corporate to focus on Korean American Center. And what was funny is I said, listen, I got to go back to work. <laughs> like I've been funding this. I've been self-fund, you know, um, not only am I funding this, but I'm not working and now I'm not generating like any income. Um, so I need to go back to work. But I was really, really satisfied for the first time in my life and not for the first time in my life. It just at that time in my life, I just found so much fulfillment and I felt like I was going back to what my passions were, um, you know, at the time, but that I had sort of put on the sideline because I was 
trying to raise the corporate ladder, rise up the corporate ladder myself in creating a comfortable life for my parents. So my parents no longer had to work at a liquor store, that they had a fully paid house, that they didn't have to worry about anything ever again, which is what I was able to provide for my parents. But they were fine. They're comfortable. My son was getting older. So I had enough savings. So it was definitely something that I could do. And so Ellen and I, we spoke uh, and we decided in 2017 to merge the two organizations. And so then I became, you know, employee and and instead of being executive director of Korean American Center and everyone wants to be a hejangnim, right? That's, (laughs) that's the other problem. It's very rare that you've got, you know, Korean organizations merging, but I think because we were both second generation and that one of us, me, was willing to sort of give up. I never wanted the executive, like to be executive director of a nonprofit organization. That wasn't, you know, what I was aiming to be. I was never aiming to be a hejangnim or whatever it is. So it was a very easy choice for me. You know, I just looked at it as a regular merger, like you would in the corporate world. So I very, I took that approach, and it's you know worked out. Uh, very well. We're still, you know, merged. We still have slightly different branding because at the time of our merger, we actually uh, received designation from uh, the South Korean government for our, you know, our language programs became one of the best uh, in the United States, a non-collegiate, like nonprofit language program. So the Korean government was, was so blown away with with the program that we were able to, to, to grow, um, that they gave us the designation of King's Hejong Institute. Um, and then we also received funding from the U.S. government for teaching Korean as a critical security language, um, you know, from the National Security Agency. So this all happened at the time of our merger. So Ellen's like, you can't just leave. (laughs) You can't just walk away from this because it was really, I think, my corporate-based experience that allowed us to grow so fast because, you know, a lot of nonprofits, they grow because of you know, you have a tone, the nonprofit mom, you know, like you have a good heart and you have the heart for service, but you have no understanding of the back end that it takes and the sort of rigor and discipline and, you know, setting up things like key performance in, you know, um, indicators and, you know, the KPIs, like no nonprofit, are, you know, the something named there were like, what? Um, and so, you know, setting up key metrics in order for growth. Um, you know, I just sort of operated it like I would have any department that I was responsible for. And I think that's what led to our growth. And plus the, the marketing expertise and to be able to market, you know, in English to attract this sort of demographic. And, you know, as a second generation Korean American, as a, a Korean learner myself, you know, understanding and, and empathizing with Korean learners uh, you know, how to outreach. But I, I think it also just very coincidentally happened around the same time as Hallyu. Yeah, the boom of... The boom of Hallyu. K-Wave and yeah. Yeah, the K-Wave. So it wasn't like we rode on the K-Wave. We just, we started as the K-Wave 
yeah. was starting coincidentally. You were in the right place at the right time. Yeah, it was uh, the right yeah. place, right time. <laughs> yeah. And so again, that's why I go back. Everything is like, like just everything that's happened has been just sort of a blessing. So that's, that's really how I became like an accidental nonprofit leader. Yeah. But, but, but did you ever go back to corporate or did you remain and became a full-time employee? Of yeah. So merger? I became a full-time employee. So again, um, you know, I still talk to my friends in corporate, um, especially the ones who are now, you know, executives, um, I do serve an advisory capacity and as an advisor for a couple of, of uh, startup organizations. And um, so I still am in the loop on, on some things, but as far as, um, you know, my actual job and income, that is not where I get that anymore. Right. I do want to move into your political career and your transition to politics. But before I do that, I, I'm curious how the COVID-19 impacted the, the center and your work there. I imagine, as you said, the organization did a lot of social services in addition to the educational aspect. And uh, could you give us a little bit of insight of how your organization pivoted, but also uh, how the community around you was impacted by this? Yeah, you know, at first, like for everyone else, it was extremely scary because, you know, we had shutdowns, we didn't know what was happening. And so, you know, we shut down just like everybody else, but, you know, we are a social service provider. We are a healthcare provider. At the end of the day, we take care of the health needs of the uninsured, the underinsured, and those receiving Medicaid, uh, especially within the Korean community. So us being shut down for a while was, was really detrimental, not only to our team, but also, you know, the services that we're able to provide for the community. But we you know, once we got through the, the confusion of everything that was happening at that time, we pivoted real quickly and became one of the main providers for COVID testing uh, within the county. And, you know, our organization, the Korean Community Services piece, KCS piece, was really the leaders when it came to uh, the, uh, leading what was called the API task force and making sure that the hardest to reach communities had access to, to COVID care and COVID testing. For the health services, you receive funding through the state from the county for a lot of those services. Um, you know, for our cultural programs, we also pivoted as well and moved everything to Zoom. And as a matter of fact, it was very dark. It was very scary for a while there, but we have continue to grow our programming. And what is actually more fascinating, because we've moved to Zoom, we're actually able to reach a lot more people through our programming and through our classes. And we've reached into huge, large swaths of Korean Americans that didn't have an opportunity to learn Korean, including a large swath of Korean adoptees. So that has been like the real interesting part of all of this. I think we have grown stronger as a result. You know, our organization and our organizational capacity has grown. We're filling the voids and we're filling the, the deep cracks that exist within the social safety network. Uh, especially for Korean Americans. We've seen an uptick of domestic violence. 
issues, the undocumented, uh, making sure that we're one of the providers that are making sure that our undocumented and our DACA recipients are receiving access in the vouchers to the relief vouchers. So, you know, for Orange County, we are the, the organization that's doing all of that work. So that's keeping us extremely busy, which the grant programming has allowed us to hire more people. And this is because of the like the state funding, the federal funding and other mm-hmm. uh, that you've yeah. been receiving. OK, yeah. Okay. In the midst of all of this craziness and shifts, you decided to run for office. And, uh, and <laughs> okay. I, I, I decided to run for office before COVID happened. <laughs> so, um, you know, so th- that's like a different, you know, so while I'm doing all of this, while I'm working, while I am, you know, doing nonprofit work, you know, I'm also involved in a lot of political endeavors, like on the side. So that's like my side, side, side uh, work that I do is, you know, in, involved in, in a Democratic Party politics, as well as helping with candidates. So I was already sort of doing that. So that's sort of the side ancillary thing and working on you know, being involved with the party, I was never really, I, I never really envisioned myself as a, as an actual candidate myself, primarily because uh, it just, you know, all the things that a candidate has to go through, just, it wasn't really anything that, that I really wanted to do. I wanted to serve and I wanted to, you know, and I understood the importance of electing good people, but I just, didn't really think that that was me. I didn't really think I was qualified. I didn't really think much of anything. And, you know, again, I I was the kid that even couldn't afford to do an internship in DC because I had to work. So that was kind of like the headspace that I was in. And, you know, just looking at really amazing people and looking at, you know, Obama or <laughs> like, that's not me. And not, not really, you know, understanding that there's different forms of leadership and different types of leadership. So I just never kind of saw myself in that capacity, but it was really me being told within the community, you know, you should run for city council. You should run for school board. You should, you know, why aren't you, you know, running for assembly? You're doing all of this work you're representing our interests, you're advocating for the community. Why aren't you doing this? But again, I just never really thought about it. And I thought, you know, I'm divorced, which I'm divorced, by the way, single mom. That was the main thing. I don't come from a rich family. You know, my family didn't go go to Sorde, you know, I, I just thought of that. I didn't go to Harvard. You know, I just always thought of these things of why I wasn't good enough what I've come to realize very common among women and especially among women of color is we're not good enough. So that was always kind of like my mindset in many ways. And I had, you know, someone just really sit me down and say to me, like, listen, you are the right kind of candidate. And explain to me all the reasons why I was a good candidate and why I would be a good candidate, uh, including all the work that I've done. And I went to Emerge candidate training through a, 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 an organization called Emerge and trained for 
six months, once like every other weekend, the entire weekend and did candidate training, intensive training and really sort of formed my decision and and really kind of, I guess, very Korean of me, like having a rock solid plan. So I came out as a candidate and announced my candidacy August of 2019. So basically almost well over a year before the election, but then COVID hit. So I felt that at that time I was, I was prepared and I was very prepared. And I think it's that preparation that allowed me to win, but it's not just the preparation. I think it's the fact that I, all the advocacy work, all the community service work that I've done and just being in the community really was demonstrated, you know, through the, the my whole candidacy. Yeah. And, and and the results were, I mean, you, you came up with record-breaking margins. You won your, you won your seat as well as you had, even before the election, you had wide number of uh, very influential people endorse your candidacies too. So, so in a sense, you were, you were wrong about yourself, right? And that in fact, you were qualified and not only qualified, but uh, the your constituents believe that you should you should um, lead the city, right? And so, uh, and then it became also vice mayor of of Irvine. And despite your all your training that you've done, were there surprises along the way? There was nothing that was surprising along the way. I mean, the, obviously the biggest shock was COVID and COVID happening and having to campaign, you know, through COVID while trying to figure out you know, how our organizations are going to survive and then deliver services. So, you know, you had that, but as far as like normal, the, the candidacy thing, I mean, you know, bottom line is this racism still exists. So yes, you know, was I told to go back to North Korea on many occasions? Yes, I was. While that part wasn't shocking, it was kind of shocking. It's still like, really, is this still like, does this still exist today? Does this still exist even in California? You know, like really North Korea kind of come up with something better. You know, I was told to go back to China. You know, white candidates are not told the same thing. You know, they're not told, oh, go back to England (laughs) where you came from. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's that perpetual Uh, you know, perpetual foreigner. So that comes out. So, you know, while that was shocking, it it wasn't. I think what was probably the, the most, most, most shocking for me as a first time candidate was the fact that I had the most money spent against me in negative campaigns. And so I clearly ruffled whatever feathers I ruffled. I clearly came out extremely high in someone's polling where there was a lot of uh, negative hit mail pieces against me. Again, some tinged with, you know, racist overtones where they showed every Asian elected official in the state of California that had supported me and, and, and basically said, Tammy wants to make Irvine like Los Angeles and San Francisco whatever that is. Uh, (laughs) And so, um, so that was probably the most surprising, you know, but they captured me with a selfie of Bernie with Bernie Sanders, that is. But I think what ended up happening was, you know, this all kind of came out during Black Lives Matter. So they show me at a Black Lives Matter rally and they want to tie me to defunding the police and the, the campaign, the negative Mail is also tying me to Antifa. And so I think voters 
you know, some, it might've resonated with them, but I think for the most part, I think voters kind of saw through that. And I think it really helped uh, elevate my profile. And it made my son really proud. He was like, oh my God, that's my mom. So that was the one time my, my son thought I was actually kind of cool. Cool. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're about five minutes over, uh, but I have actually uh, one final question, which is if there are aspiring young Asians who would like to run for office, what would you advise? And then secondly, is the is the final question, which is if you could speak to your 18, 20 year old self, what would you tell the young Tammy Kim? So the first question, what would you advise ambitious, young, aspiring Asian Americans when, if they're thinking about politics, running for office, what would you advise them? I would advise them to start before they even think about running for office, work on a campaign, volunteer on a campaign, understand what the campaign piece is like first. Uh, too often, people want to run for office who have never even so much as volunteered for a campaign. That's number one. Number two, understand that A lot of campaigning is fundraising. It's as simple as that. And if you're not willing or able to fundraise, it's going to be very difficult to to actually run and win. You know, anyone can run for office. It's the winning part that is the difficult part. And so I would say, you know, make sure you have a plan for fundraising. The plan for fundraising is not uh, donating or putting all of your money into it, but it's actually being able to outreach into the community. So it's not you putting your own money into a campaign, it's you getting money from supporters for the campaign. And then I would say three is making sure that if you have those things down packed, that you attend the meetings that you attend public sessions, that you are actually well-versed in what it is that you're running for. Because again, a lot of times candidates want to run and they don't actually know what they're running for or they've never so much as, for example, city council meeting, never even spoke at the dais, never made a public comment in their life. And I think having all those pieces will then, you know, put you in a much better position of actually winning. So that's the key points that we want to make sure that you run and win. And what I would tell my 18-year-old self is, you know what? It's okay. It is okay. And I finally learned that at 50, don't let things get to you. Don't let people put you down. Don't let it affect you. Just move forward and not letting others bring you down, not letting others sort of impact your self-worth. And I didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but I think every like angsty teenage girl, I don't, maybe boy (laughs) sort of goes through that, but just remember that it's all good. And everything that's happening to you right now, it's, it's like not even going to matter in like five years and you won't even remember you will get to that point. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tammy, for uh, your time, your insights, and also sharing your life with us. We really appreciate uh, you opening up and really teaching us so many different things, not only about the professional life, but also uh, serving in nonprofits and, and in public service. So thank you very much for your time, Tammy. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.